Today's episode is brought to you in part by ExtraHop. Think analytics, folks. ExtraHop is the enterprise cyber analytics company delivering performance and security from the inside out. More on ExtraHop later in the show, but if you just can't wait, visit extrahop.com slash packet pushers to find out more. QoS is difficult to implement over the internet because, hey, you don't own all the gear between you and the destination. And even if you do own all of the bits, QoS is hard to monitor. How do you know you've gotten it right? And if it's not working the way you want, how can you tell that? And then when you've got all that sorted, what do you do about it? So these, among other things, are QoS gotchas that maybe you've run into. And to help us form a network design strategy to cope with these gotchas is Pete Welcher, a network architect at NetCraftsman, a consultancy in the Washington, D.C. area here in America that support folks uh, around the world. And we're going to hit some QoS limitations to lead off the show and then spend the rest of our time focused on how to monitor QoS in a way that is actionable. So Pete Welcher, welcome, uh, I think welcome back to uh, the Packet Pushers, to the Heavy Networking Show. If you would, introduce yourself to folks. Who are you and what do you do? Okay, well, as you said, I'm an architect with NetCraftsman. The company does consulting and managed services. Uh, have, we'd like to think we have heavy network and UC staff skills, also some uh, virtualization VMware and cloud skills. Uh, we're currently specializing a lot in SD-WAN deploy and operate, managed network. Uh, with some WAN and management partners, global customers. Um, my particular interests are design, network assessments, new technology, and, of course, QS. Ah. And I probably should probably add in weird troubleshooting. I seem to get all the really oddball ones. <laughs> this is strange. Let's go get Pete. <laughs> he can figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and of course, QoS is is one of my uh, favorite topics. I've written about it a lot and presented at Interop and uh, done some writing about it in uh, in a book that we're, Pete and I are on video right now. Those of you that are listening, and I see the book that I uh, worked with Russ White on just over your shoulder, Pete. Computer networking problems and solutions, mm-hmm. and I wrote the QoS chapter in there. So, okay, QoS. Now, this show for those of you listening comes in part because of the Net Craftsman blog. Pete blogs there and wrote an article called QoS Gotchas and made a lot of points that I thought were diving into a little bit deeper. Um, so if you were to Google NetCraftsman and QoS gotchas, you could find that article. And of course, we'll have the link to this article in the show notes at packetpushers.net as well. Um, so Pete, one thing I want to open up with is something that I think for some folks is a bit controversial. You advocate for QoS on the LAN. And a lot of people are like, ah, eh, you know, QoS on the WAN is really what we need. You know, those those smaller uh, number of bits we have to work with, those smaller uh, pipes. But on the LAN, it's fine. There's at least gigabit pretty much everywhere. So I don't need QoS there. But you, you advocate for that, saying QoS is about short-lived events. So could you explain what you mean by QoS is about short-lived events and why that might drive us to having a QoS scheme deployed on the LAN? Sure, and a little history around that. Earlier this year, I did a uh, consulting engagement for a global company that was having some QS issues and heard precisely that and got into a discussion with some very sharp people. And so a lot of what ended up in that uh, blog and in this discussion is some thoughts that come out about, came out of that uh, consulting engagement for, okay, it looks like what we're doing isn't working. What could we do better? What could the customer do better? Um, as far as the uh, short-lived events, I think of QS, uh, well, it's about queues. And queues, when they fill up, what happens is you drop packets. So if you have a giant shared queue and you're not doing QS, 
anything that sends along a heavy-duty stream of packets, like a file transfer, essentially can fill the queue. In addition, in a LAN switching environment, when you have multiple, let's say, one-gig ports coming in, let's say you have 41-gig ports coming in, or 48, and 10-gig uplink, well, you could have more traffic than that uplink can handle. Going the other way, you've got traffic coming in at 10 gig, and it's got to go out a one gig port. And the analogy there would be you're zipping along a high interstate highway, and you've yep. got a backed up exit. Yeah, and this can be very meaningful in that environment. Yeah, and so those short lived events are those very brief congestion events that happen as you're transferring. Um, uh, well, you gave an example of an elephant flow that can e- very easily fill an interface, and it may only might mm-hmm. only happen for very small fractions of a second, you know, milliseconds or even microseconds, but that congestion event can cause a buffer to fill and packets to be dropped. So this is the circumstance in which you're advocating for QoS on the LAN? Yep. Or you could have a case in point would be uh, you're doing replication over VPN, but you're doing uh, software as a service-based telephony, Microsoft telephony or whatever. And so where your LAN comes together with your data center stream and reaching the internet to go over the VPN or to get out to Microsoft, uh, whoops, yeah. <laughs> we've got colliding <laughs> traffic. And the uh, replication could tie up the interface uh, pretty heavily for a long period of time. Hmm. But even short-lived stuff, uh, just need a small file transfer that uh, temporarily hits whatever the queue depth is, and you're going to be dropping your voice. All right, so I'm I'm curious what a LAN QoS scheme looks like to you because we've just horrified a bunch of network engineers that are listening to this going, oh my word, there's so many LAN ports out there. I can't imagine putting a queuing scheme across a, a whole bunch of LAN ports. So so let's let's break this down into something that's a little bit more digestible maybe than than something someone feeling completely overwhelmed. Uh, what does that LAN QoS scheme look like to you? Uh, actually, to me, it looks kind of like the wide area scheme, but Simpler. So premise number one is QS is misspelled. It should be P-I-T-B, pain in the butt. (laughs) Fair, yeah. (laughs) And so it's not something we voluntarily undertake, but we do it because we have things like voice and video that are uh, not performing particularly well. Um, So deeds driven. And if you're perfectly happy with things as they are, or if you don't have the staff, well, then maybe you don't tackle QS. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want predictably good, uh, if you have a crabby CIO, CEO, who's going to get upset about their WebEx looking bad or whatever, they probably want to do QS. So I would do the wide area first because I'll grant that you're more likely to have uh, queuing issues in the wide area because bandwidth's kind of tight there. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, denying that you can have um, problems on the LAN is inappropriate. It's more a matter of priorities. Um, in addition, if you've got a good QS policy on the wide area, that's where um, the previous consulting gig comes in. Um, looked like a really well thought out QS plan on the wide area, but still having voice quality issues. And it's kind of like, well, time to take out some insurance, get some QS there before you and uh, before you start going through the rigor of so and so had a bad call at such and such a time, and they were here in the network trying to diagnose their problems in gory detail take out the QS insurance and make sure that you're doing your best you can to protect their voice. Uh, as far as deploying it, uh, the switches tend to have simpler schemes for eight queues. And so what you're looking for is kind of a gross cut 
separating your elephant flows from your more fragile yep. stuff. Yeah, so more fragile stuff as in, um, you know, voice is going to be very small compared to an elephant flow. You're not going to be taking up that many bits per second, um, but they are very sensitive and an elephant flow can step all over them. So we're talking about a QoS scheme that is going to be able to identify and prioritize that that VoIP traffic in this in this example. Right. And actually, voice is not the worst case. Voice is fragile. You can lose a, a, an occasional packet and voice will make up for it. Yeah. Video is uh, much more sensitive because if you lose the iframe, then you get the square pixelization that most of us yeah. have seen on our cable TV or whatever um, until the next iframe comes along and sort of sets the background picture mm-hmm. because what you're shipping is differences from that iframe. It's, that's how most of the compression schemes work. Okay, so as far as LandQS, uh, part of what I like to have is a trust boundary doing classification and marking. And I would put that uh, between the dumb and the smart switches, so to speak. There's a myth that layer two switches, at least Cisco layer two switches, cannot do layer three QS. And it's a myth. They can mostly. Yeah. Um, and I would call those smart switches. The, the, and so that's where I would kind of draw the line. I'm not too interested in layer two QS and COS just kind of not worth the bother. No, you're really, you're talking about mapping what, if you happen to be handed a class of service value, 802.1p value, mapping that into a DSCP value, I assume? Well, I prefer DSCP values end to end, and the COS COS values are available if you want to use them because you have a large edge of quote-unquote dumb switches. I would prefer to have, uh, and so some of the 2960S models, for instance, for Cisco, just can't really do much in the way of classification and marking. So I would tend to deploy uh, classification and marking um, at the first smart switch and then work my way outward with COS if I absolutely have to. But the question is, how is COS getting set in the first place? Um, and so that's that's getting into pretty gray territory. So trust boundary, get the traffic marked. Hmm. Um, I've been adopting a KISS principle as far as QS. Keep it simple. Yeah. Keep it simple, and, stupid, uh, yeah. because it's it's nasty enough as it is. So one of the premises, which is quite arguable, is let's do all the QS based on access lists. Not because I'm particularly fond of access lists, but because they are lowest common denominator. I've been able to do them on almost every platform. And is your use case for access lists to mark traffic and then make decisions based on marks going forward, or uh, do you just like yep. to? Use, okay, no, I don't <laughs> just like using access lists. Well, yeah, the point would be to match traffic and uh, yeah. and set the serve bits so that we have uh, we know what we're dealing with upstream of that edge no, trust. Yeah, we're we're of a like mind. I've I've done the same exact thing. You use the access list to apply a DSCP value to that packet, and then going forward, as you get deeper into the network, you're making decisions on that DSCP value. You can you can build a more uniform right. policy that way and keep yourself sane. It also helps with tunnels and uh, NATs and you know, and so on, the DSCP value being mm-hmm. preserved as, uh, as those as that packet gets transformed in certain ways. Now, there's an asterisk on that, which is lately I've been willing to trust the, uh, some things. I started out being very paranoid and untrusting, and I decided, no, nope, that's more work. So less paranoia is probably good. Uh, for instance, if you, with uh, Skype, voice, you could uh, set the, uh, set a group policy object on the server and have all the edge uh, markings done for you. And mm-hmm. so 
the asterisk would be on things like a voice VLAN or recognizable Microsoft traffic, I'm willing to trust uh, server-based driven marking. Now, having said that, one of the problems with Skype has been that you have a large range of, of uh, ports, 32,000 through 48,000 or whatever, available. And so one of the changes, which even Microsoft, I think at one point was recommending, was pick a range of like 100 ports and narrow each of the four categories of voice-related traffic down to those uh, four ranges, something like that. So UDP from here to there, maybe you have a voice subnet. That would be nice. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's maybe asterisk number two. I prefer, what's a polite way to say this? I don't think I want to be in the business of knowing what is connected to various ports. So that's one problem I have with auto QS is it kind of assumes that you're going to say, hey, this is a phone out there. Yeah, so, well, I mean, it's nice if it's an all Cisco yeah. system and CDP makes the announcement mm -hmm. and you know you can trust what what's you're being told on that port, but that's that's certainly far from the uh, yeah. the norm. Yeah, so if I can have a voice VLAN, that would be nice. Or if I have access yeah. points strapped on, I'd rather rather than treating them as a access point derived um, port, so to speak, I would rather have the access points go feed into a v separate VLAN and do VLAN based QoS. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that helps keep I'm, it simple. It, you, you do end up making some assumptions that way, but you know, on mm -hmm. uh, presumably, if the network has been designed and the endpoints deposited into the correct VLANs, that is trustworthy enough and keeps you sane as you're trying to build your policies. Yeah, the point being fewer points of application. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and there are gotchas to it. So the next uh, thing that I thought of, and this is a big gotcha as far as deployment, is you want to trust DiffServe on up and down links on both ends of the trunks connecting the switches. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm making a deal about that is that sometimes to save money, our customer consulting customers want to deploy QS for themselves. And my perception is that that usually results in incomplete QS. You have buffer overruns when you're pasting into config, but worse than that, people miss one end or the other of the trunk links. And so you end up not trusting your disk serve and remarking everything to zero. Oh, and, and, uh, about trust boundary specifically, right? Yes, because the default posture yeah, is going I mean, to be to, to to remove those marks. Yeah. Yeah. So inside your trust boundary on all your uplinks and downlinks, you want to be trusting DiffServe mm. so that you're not <laughs> overwriting your markings right. that you went yes. to work to apply. <laughs> For WAN QS, you have to map your LAN to WAN, and sometimes that um, usually uh, carriers nowadays have about six classes, and so you have to shoehorn eight into six and design a mapping, but that's not a big deal. You just match certain diff serve values and combine them yep. to the, the WAN queues. And as far as I'm concerned, if your MQLS carrier requires you, does not sort of preserve your diff serve markings as is, you need a new carrier. Uh, fair. <laughs> I, yeah, it's been, it's been, you know, back in the day, there's some carriers that they, they weren't even doing um, you know, full D DSCP value. They were only using three bits and not six. And so you kind of, uh, they, they would preserve the value, but only act on the first three bits because they were using an IP precedence, um, but would still preserve the values, at least in, in my experience. But Yeah, that's actually okay with me. What I've seen is ones where they will match specific disserve, but not the sort of related ones. Like they'll match CS3, but not AF31, 32, 33. Hmm. And to me, all those should be lumped into the same queue based on the type of service. Lead three bits. 
Now, what's your take specifically on uh, policing and shaping of, of an elephant flow to help get control of the, you know, that, that situation you were describing where an elephant flow was filling up an interface and stepping all over everybody mm-hmm. else. I, I've had, it's not my favorite thing to do, but I've had some scenarios where the easiest thing to do is just to, to stick that elephant flow through a shaper to throttle it a bit. And it left a lot of headroom mm-hmm. for um, the, the other flows that were in that shared link. Yeah, so I regard policing as drastic and last resort because mm-hmm. you're putting a hard cap on something. And the problem I have with that is you may have bandwidth that could have been used and not being used. And it's like, why the heck not use it? So with shaping, what you're doing is you're divvying up the available bandwidth, or I think the actual implementation may be closer to chances to speak, chances to transmit. So you get, uh, if you have a ratio of, and smaller numbers, 50% gets, uh, let's say, four shots at transmitting, 25% gets two shots, and proportionally, the others get less. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing shaping, the unused bandwidth can be used. Uh, You have to think this through carefully, though. Uh, Replication on WAN links used to be the bad boy. So if you have Mm -hmm. database replication, people want 300 megabits on a one gig link, you could police it, but My perspective is guarantee it the 300 and make sure you guarantee the other 700 to the other classes. And then if they don't need it, fine, your replication. There is a risk to that. Your database people get used to fast replication and complain when it goes slow. And it's like, yeah, but it's working as designed. Or the second thing is that uh, it sort of creeps up on you and your nightly replication starts taking longer than 24 hours because of some other traffic or something. Yeah, no, I think the the point you made at, at the top of this section about if if you police or if you do um, if you do policing, you are not allowing a flow to use bandwidth it might otherwise have used. Whereas with class based weighted fair queuing, you can if there's more bandwidth available, use it. There's more tokens in the bucket, if you will, that are available. You can you can use them. But mm-hmm. if other classes need them, then they're going to use them uh, instead. So yeah, I think that was a that was a great point to make there uh, about that um, with, with the caveats that you mentioned. Yeah, related point would be that a lot of the Cisco examples when you have a voice VLAN, they want you to do policing to make sure you don't get runaway traffic in the priority queue. Yeah, low latency queuing will, will do that, right? It's got a, the built-in policer. Yeah, and the one problem I have with that is that, well, I've seen cases where there's actual explicit uh, policing on top of it to a one meg or a three meg or something. And my problem with that is that you're doing extra work and also, you have to do it per interface. You can't do it per VLAN. So in order to deploy QS on a per VLAN basis and keep it simple, I've been viewing that as, uh, you know, how how likely is it somebody's going to have an application that transmits stuff that's marked like voice traffic at a, a high rate and creates a denial of service or whatever situation? Well, I guess that's where the trust boundaries come in, isn't it? Yeah, so, yeah, too much pseudo-voice could really create problems. But on the other hand, maybe I shouldn't worry about it until I actually have that problem. (laughs) It's creating extra work for myself. (laughs) So that's a design choice I usually offer people. Well, we've talked, we're talking uh, in some detail about uh, LAN QoS schemes. One thing we haven't mentioned, Pete, is wireless QoS. uh, Mm -hmm. How does that fit into a LAN QoS scheme, the, uh, the wireless clients? 
Uh, I'm tempted to say badly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, actually, it, it sort of fits pretty well. You can take the uh, COS, and if you have to, map to DISR. But the thing is, if you're doing CAPWAP or Ethernet over uh, IP tunneling to the controller, uh, you're probably going to have the right DISR set in the, in the tunnel header anyway. So, And you're sort of stuck with writing an access list that says traffic between APs, which are presumably in the, a set of subnets you control, and the controller uh, is uh, trusted because you really don't want to start matching on those. Uh, the bigger problem, which I've been burned by, is that the existing uh, international standard for wireless side QS is kind of dumb, um, <laughs> for lack of a better word, namely, what I've seen customers do is they'll set up uh, guest traffic to get bronze or whatever it is, mm -hmm. where AF11 is the highest disk serve marking that can be applied. Mm -hmm. well, and then that hit. So what was happening was the EAP traffic for authenticating guests was hitting the network with AF11 and getting mixed in with the bulk traffic on the rest of the LAN and getting tossed. And so EAP wasn't completing, but just for guests. <laughs> Boy, okay. And it's kind of like, uh, no, I don't think uh, setting a max value for QS is all that wonderful an idea, but <laughs> I'm not sure I have a better proposal. And I guess it's better to have a standard than none. It's just that one rubs me the wrong way. And I guess I'll spare the audience us diving too deep into wireless QoS in this uh, show because I've actually got a show just on wireless QoS I'm going to be recording with someone else in about 48 hours from now. So they've got a whole show yeah. coming up on wireless QoS for the people that really want to nerd out about that stuff. So, But but I think we can both agree that, yeah, it is a consideration, but it's not the same world as wired QoS. Wireless QoS is a bit of a different animal. And if people are interested, uh, after Cisco Live, I waded through several of the presentations, and there's some good material there on wireless QS and coming changes to it. Okay. We'll be back to this podcast shortly, but we're going to talk about ExtraHop, a packet pusher sponsor, first. Your job probably includes managing applications, network infrastructure, and so on. But how do you do that when you can't even see everything those apps are running on, when half the network the app is running across isn't even yours? Add to that SDN changing things in automated ways that maybe feel out of your control, or devs and other business units firing up their own cloud instances and then expecting you to support it even though you've got zero instrumentation. These scenarios are some of the ways that ExtraHop can help. ExtraHop is a leader in network analytics, and they help you consolidate tools into their analytics platform and make sense of application performance running over infrastructure that's sprawled beyond your data center and across the internet and then into the cloud. ExtraHop offers complete visibility and leverages machine learning to help you make sense of the mountain of metadata about your network, and in the end, you can make informed decisions about your IT stack and do it quickly. If you go to extrahop.com slash packetpushers, you can find out more about the ExtraHop performance platform. Once more, that is extrahop.com slash packetpushers, and now back to the show. Well, let's move the conversation ahead, Pete, from QoS on the LAN to QoS on the internet. I mean, I think the obvious point here is it's pretty difficult to implement QoS over the internet in the sense that you don't own the network gear in the middle between you and whatever your endpoint is there across the internet. The last thing you own is whatever your last top is before you hand that off to your carrier. So what are your options really to implement any sort of prioritization when there's an internet circuit involved? And 
this the point you made in the article that I referenced earlier, you know, inbound policers, uh, we could talk about that, I guess. Uh, there's an impact to TCP traffic that's interesting, an impact to non-act traffic that's worth bringing up and, uh, you know, and so on. So I, I'll let you have a go. What, what are my options then with um, uh, QoS and internet-based traffic? Suck it up. <laughs> is that is that an RFC, the suck it up RFC? Yeah, so, there, so there's no QS on the internet. They don't provide SLAs, although right. a lot of the service has been pretty good as far as drops and so on. Um, the biggest problem is uh, egress from the ISP. So you've got streams of traffic coming from various points on the internet, and they're getting fed out from the ISP to your router, and there's no prioritization on that. So your voice and video packets coming from WebEx or whatever your media service is are going to get mixed in with your VPN replication and VPN user flows, and there's not a doggone thing you can do about it. Now, the very smart customer I had, um, this could get complicated, so I'm going to kind of skirt the edges of it and try to drop the subject. Uh, You don't want the rest of the show to be about this one thing. (laughs) They had a very clever idea that they implemented on their Juniper routers of setting up a virtual router, think VRF, and taking the inbound um, internet interface, feeding it to a virtual router, and then feeding it out a physical interface, thereby putting themselves in a position to do shaping and percentages on the outbound interface. Okay. So they they added a hop, I guess, to to try to give them a chance to manipulate this traffic? Yeah, they added a virtual hop because, and the reasoning was you can't do shaping inbound, so let's do it outbound, convert inbound to outbound. Um, And then the thinking was that that would throttle the replication flows and allow the other traffic. And that kind of bothered me for about two weeks. I'd wake up at three in the morning dreaming about it (laughs) and finally put my finger on what was bothering me, which was QS depends on Let's, let's say you have an all-replication flow going, and it's sucking up all your bandwidth. Well, QS needs a signal to cause that to back off. It needs to see some voice traffic or some higher-priority traffic for the QS mechanism, the scheduler mechanism, to throttle back the uh, replication elephant flow mm-hmm. a little bit. However, if you're backing your interface with your replication flow, your physical interface to the internet. How does that voice traffic even get in that interface? Right. Yeah. So how do you receive that signal that voice needs to get a foot in edgewise? Uh, it turns out that Googling turned up uh, exactly one article on the subject. And it was by, I think it was Riverbed, if I remember correctly. It was months ago. But um, somebody had a clever scheme where basically they, uh, deliberately capped the U.S. traffic at like 95%, 98%, and left a little headroom mm-hmm. so that your other traffic, your signal, could sort of come in and cause the throttling of the lower priority queues. Hmm. Maybe, in principle. I'd like to see it work in a lab. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, QS on the internet, the, the only useful thing I've ever been able to do is run a policer on that inbound traffic, which for TCP Mm -hmm. flows that are coming inbound, if you exceed the police trait, it's going to drop them. The TCP mechanism Mm -hmm. will, oh, I've got some drop packets and it's going to throttle back. That can give, it's not very graceful, but it can, it can help a bit in certain circumstances. Um, 
I wouldn't want yep, to do that on, like that. Uh, on non-TCP traffic, I guess, because that seems like it could be pretty ugly depending on what the traffic is you're trying to throttle. Yeah. Now, if you want one that'll make your head hurt, if you have, uh, let's say you have three headquarters or data center sites and you've got VPN tunnels, you're trying to control three different VPN tunnels to a remote site, you kind of want to police the aggregate of the traffic. Uh, it, it gets messy. Just yeah. <laughs> And there isn't, aren't enough layers of hierarchy in any implementation I've seen to do what I'd like to do. So a, a customer that I was recently working with here uh, as a consultant described to me a different scenario, which is not uh, clever or graceful at all, but actually weirdly solves the problem. They've got multiple circuits. They dedicate all of their VPN traffic to one circuit and all of their other bulk internet traffic to a different circuit. So it's not like it's not clever. It's just, yeah, we threw multiple circuits in there and, and now we know we're going to get a certain level of service by just routing certain kinds of traffic over one and, and the rest of the traffic over the other. It's not QoS, but... That, that's in fact what I recommended was for manageability yeah. uh, because otherwise you're trying to do math that the QS just won't let you do. And, and uh, it's the reporting side too. Just if you have your VPN replication mixed with everything else, you got to subtract that out of everything you're looking at on that one interface. I, I think what we're really talking about here is a, is a problem of bandwidth, though, first and foremost. And of course, you know, every QoS problem should be, or every problem that we're thinking about solving with QoS, we should be trying to solve with bandwidth first, if that's that's an option. At least that's my philosophy. Now, on the internet, that's even even more true because we have essentially very little or, or no QoS tooling that we can work with. So how do you know when you have enough bandwidth for whatever the problem, the traffic problem is that you're trying to solve? Yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> so what I, and I ended up uh, in this consulting engagement that I mentioned, I had to go back to fundamentals and start thinking about that. What would be the indication that you've got a problem? How do you know if you've got enough? Uh, what I came up with was, well, Replication is tough. It'll survive being dropped. It's resilient traffic. So maybe I don't care about that. And maybe my best effort traffic, I don't care about. So maybe what I want to do is watch the bandwidth for the other classes and make sure they're getting enough bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And maybe I can tell that by looking for drops in the sum of those queues. Oh, so you're talking about traffic classes from a QoS perspective. In other words, we've marked these mm -hmm. packets. They are there for a certain traffic class and watching queues you know, on interfaces and, and how different traffic classes are being handled. Uh, is, that, is that what you're suggesting here? Yeah. And the problem that you, we ran into was if you just look at the utilization data, it's very hard to tell. Are we, um, does it, do we need more bandwidth or not? And kind of the other thing I noticed was that when you look at a month uh, and you see some spikes, they look awfully skinny and non-threatening. But in fact, they might represent an hour or two of uh, saturated length, which would not be too good. So it's kind of working towards how can I get a single number that will tell me what's going on on the interface? If I have to start looking at every interface, that's a lot of stuff, even just internet and WAN interfaces, that's a lot to look at. Uh, namely two times the number of sites or something like that. But if I do QS, then you've got six or eight times as many queues to look at. That just becomes unwieldy. And 
I guess the, the basic point there is that the Mark I eyeball is not an efficient way to um, get a handle on this. Yeah, you got you want to dive into you know, what applications are um, using the pipe and uh, and map mm-hmm. those back to their priorities and are those specifically getting enough uh, bandwidth? So you actually want to carve this. You want to you want to have a more more insight into not just the aggregate how much traffic is getting pushed through the pipe, but uh, how many how much bandwidth is being used by individual traffic classes within that pipe, and then you know make a more informed decision. For That's hard data to get, Pete. Actually, well, I was trying to go the other way, which was instead of looking at all the classes, break it into two buckets of this: all the fragiles and all the other stuff. Okay, yeah. So what I care about is did the collection of fragile and important classes in the aggregate get enough bandwidth, have a low enough rate of discards? Because they're going to cooperate, assuming I got my percentages right, they're going to be okay as long as they've got enough bandwidth. And if if I'm seeing drops, then the issue is that one of those classes is not sized properly. And part of Cape It Simple, by the way, is I don't want to do per interface percentages because troubleshooting, oh, do I have the right numbers on this interface or am I uh, having a problem here, is, would be very tough. So... My theory is that you have a fixed set of percentages, and if you start dropping traffic or whatever, you order up more bandwidth because tuning things on a per-interface basis is just not sustainable. Well, I, I want to talk more about this, but I want to save it for a, for a bit later. Um, but I want to talk more about what exactly we're monitoring. So the people who are like, okay, is there some SNMP object I should monitor or something? But but let's save that because I got a few more internet things I want to talk about before we dive mm-hmm. into uh, specifically how to monitor these aspects of our QoS environment. So another internet question here I've got for you, Pete. Um, a lot of shops are maybe a hub and spoke model and they backhaul their internet access through um, some headquarters locations. That way they can do their security inspections and whatever it might be. Um, the uh, other popular answer here, it would be direct internet access where every site has their own internet circuit and you're, you're pumping traffic out that way. Uh, from a QoS perspective, do you have a, a, a feeling on you know, one versus the other, whether we should go with backhauled or direct internet access or, or, or something in the middle? Yeah, I, I've been kind of liking a third choice, which is kind of regional hubs, otherwise known as the Equinix or Colo mm. solution. So if you sort of move away from data center centricity and use a Colo service in regions, then you can put a full security stack in the Colo, virtual or physical, depending on performance needs. And Keep your latency down by regionalizing internet access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and typically, you might, ha- if you can afford it, you might have two locations on U.S. East Coast, let's say, two in the middle, two in the West, two, two in Europe, that kind of thing yeah. uh, for failover and prioritize one and second. That requires a little bit of complexity of the routing, but it's not terrible. And it's pretty easy to do with uh, SD-WAN, with uh, the Cisco SD-WAN solution which is where we're actually doing it uh, mm-hmm. now. Um, of course, it's fun when you screw it up. But <laughs> Which Cisco SD-WAN solution is? They've got a few in the mix now. Is it the the, the Viptela oh, yeah. one? Or? Viptela. Yeah, okay. So that that's pretty easy to set up. Now, what I see as a growing solution is doing it uh, with the direct internet access at every site. And I see that as a really great fit for possibly smaller companies that are buying a service like Zscaler or Umbrella. Mm-hmm where you've outsourced your security headaches 
Because the challenge is, uh, if you have distributed security stacks, even if they're virtualized, there's going to be costs to deploying them and managing them. Um, and do you really want to undertake all that cost, or can you make it somebody else's headache? Yeah, uh, the cost of, of having and owning, say, uh, a Palo Alto box at every site and pumping all the traffic through that and needing to manage that and the maintenance costs, as opposed to uh, using an SD-WAN solution that would route that traffic up to, you mentioned Zscaler earlier, um, mm-hmm. them doing the inspection for you and just, just basically outsourcing that to a third party, that security inspection uh, function. Yep. So that's uh, sort. Of, I see that as a trade-off: a smaller shop, uh, staffing, um, ability to do it in depth versus a bigger company which has the ability and the need to do more controls, mm. perhaps. Mm. Um, and there are some other solutions. Uh, we're t- working with a company called Opaque O P A Q, which has a uh, Equinix um, colo-based uh, approach for managed service security services. Interesting. All right. Now you had mentioned in your article, um, uh, discard SLAs for internet circuits, which made me smile because as far as I know, there is no SLA <laughs> guarantee of internet circuits. Unless you're a business buying a very premium internet circuit, you're not going to get any sort of SLAs that, that I know of. Uh, you know, a discard SLA would be the carrier promising to drop no more than X amount of packets on your internet circuit. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any such thing that I can get? No, it would be nice to start a carrier competition where they actually are giving us stats. Um, for that matter, uh, even with uh, internet ISPs providing circuits, some of the reporting they allegedly provide uh, that I've seen is just ridiculous. Like one data point per hour. <laughs> yeah, you had a lot of traffic in the last hour. <laughs> thanks, thanks for the granularity. Yeah. Uh, how can I troubleshoot my problem knowing that I hit 30% during that hour, but nothing about spikes and yeah. Anyway. Right. Well, so, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't missing a trick there. I kind of, you know, I thought it was almost a tongue in cheek point that you were making there in the article. And I guess, I, I guess I wasn't too far off there. Uh, yeah. Well, the other thought was that sometimes you'll get SLAs for loss, but for WAN or ISPs, but they tend to be aggregates across all their circuits, across all days of the month. <laughs> Same thing with SLAs. They tend the uh, you know for performance pa- for uh, payment uh, guarantees. Yeah, we'll average your router, which was down all month, with four hundred other yeah. routers, and you don't hit the threshold. We we don't owe you any money. Yep, they've stacked the deck so firmly in their favor that you think the SLA means something when, in fact, it does not. Yeah, it does not at all. Yeah, so caveat emptor. Okay. Well, all right, Pete, let's dive into the, uh, the, the well, what I what I think is going to be the title of this show here, <laughs> Actionable QoS Monitoring. So um, uh, a lot of folks, so I, I recently did a QoS course for uh, Ignition, our Packet Pushers membership site, and I did a survey in preparation for that course. And one of the ones, uh, one of the questions I asked people is, what do you want me to talk about in this course? And one of the things that came up over and over again is, how in the heck do I measure that my QoS is actually working? Now, for mm-hmm. folks that have configured QoS, they've built some kind of a, a policy at, let's say, a Cisco command line. There are plenty of show commands that can verify, sure, you had a certain number of packets that went through this part of the policy, and you know these are the things that happened. There were these drop events or, or whatever it was. 
Uh, but that's that only goes so far. Um, you know, and Pete, I wanted to pick your brain here and get more information about how we can monitor how our QoS is doing in in an actionable way. Where by actionable, I mean the information is going to be useful to us to help us make decisions about how our network should be. Maybe we need to change the design. Maybe we need to tweak configurations a little bit. Uh, and so on. So one of the things that you stress in your article, your QoS Gotcha's article, Pete, was uh, measuring user experience. Um, so let's start there. Can you describe what user experience is, what, what that means to you in this context? User experience is you're driving some application and you're either happy with it or you're not happy with it. So it's either performing well or you're getting screen artifacts in a video or dropouts in your voice. Mm-hmm. The question being, how can you measure that? So you need to, um, I guess I came up with kind of two alternatives down in his notes hastily. <laughs> Brain was working better earlier today. But uh, either you snoop on the traffic, which some applications do, or I should mention Aternity, which is now, it was acquired by Riverbed. Um, fairly pricey product, but it sort of snooped on everything somebody did on their desktop workstation including keystrokes, and it would measure the keystroke to response time. Oh, my. And so to make that deployable, uh, affordable, you could deploy it to a couple of users at each site over across a bunch of sites and sort of observe real user traffic. So that, that's some kind of an um, agent base with some agent sitting back there and reporting mm-hmm. uh, back to some central collector? Yep. And, it'll, and you get uh, time to get a, key, a response from keystroke. Uh, another variant of that approach, uh, not quite keystroke aware, but that's okay, it would be tetration. At least if you have an agent on the on the PC, it sees the TCP mm-hmm. flows and it can monitor that f- and figure out whether it's network or application-based slowness. Um, and technically, I believe in that. Um, I think, and maybe uh, you do it, I'm calling them canary users. So yeah. you have canaries in the coal mine. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, ExtraHop is pretty similar where they can pull, they're pulling all the data off the wire and making application inferences, uh, looking at interpacket gaps and um, delays in response time and so on. And there's actually a bunch of solutions that play in this space. To, yeah, that the work problem in I have with various ways. Riverbed, some of the others have similar things. Yeah. The problem I have with them is they're honking big packets never stuck in the middle of your network. Yeah. And they have to be in the packet flow. Yes. So typically put them at the egress point, but then you don't see traffic between servers. Exactly. Or or you're spending tons of money for you know agents that are gathering the information to send back to the collector mm-hmm. in addition to the packet sniffing component and so on. Yeah. Or get, you build out a mong you build out a Mongo Gigamon or Ixia oh, yeah. infrastructure. Sure. Yeah. Packet broker type stuff. Yeah. And so that's where I kind of like conceptually like the agent better, but that's a matter of taste, my personal taste. Uh, the other way you can get at it is uh, what I'd call synthetic monitoring, Thousand Eyes, AppNeta, NetBees. Mm-hmm. And so you set up something, and there you have to take into account the limitations of those products. Uh, typically, you provide them the central management console with a web target, and then you have a bunch of probes sitting someplace, which could be virtual, could be physical, um, and they will hit the target and uh, report to the central station and you can measure response time. Yeah. And that synthetic transaction is actually replicating what a user is doing. That's the intent of it. It, it would, it could include a login. It could include things like, like a, an HTTP transaction that's going to run and you'll get, ex, get back some expected data set. And all of that uh, information is logged in that synthetic transaction. And they just run 
you know, automatically. It's sort of like your Canary user. Um, mm-hmm. Although, in, in fairness to, to these... Difference being that they're more limited uh, in terms of just HTTP or HTTPS, typically. Uh, login may or may not be supported. Um, so it may just be hitting a web page. Does CNN respond or whatever? Some but of them will do, do things like they'll do kind of a voice measurement in some cases. They'll they'll at least mm-hmm. give you a mean uh, mean opinion score, give you a MOS, uh, come back that that's out there. Yep. Um, I know Thousand Eyes and I believe Netbees both will give you uh, a Wi-Fi impact where they'll hang out on the end mm-hmm. of of a Wi-Fi connected like a windows workstation and then know that that's part of the hop and give you information about Wi-Fi, So you can figure out if it's just an overloaded access point that's causing the user's problem. Yeah. Well, we've used uh, the dongle on the net fees to do wireless. They've got a lot of good data on the wireless side. Um, we, we've had a few funky troubleshooting things where CEOs were complaining about poor performance on their iPad or whatever. And uh, in one case that was very helpful in detecting that, Oh, for whatever reason, the CEO is associating with the AP that's 60 feet down the hall mm. as opposed to the one that's right outside his office. Rebooted the AP, problem went away. Now, you said NetBees in the dongle. Now, NetBees deploys on a, last I knew it was a Raspberry Pi device. So you're talking about actually mm-hmm. using the NetBees uh, Raspberry Pi tester and having a, a wireless dongle. So it's got to associate with an AP to figure that out. Is that how that works? Yeah, it looks like a thumb drive, and you just shove in the wireless NIC and yeah. uh, use it. Um, I don't know how you do that with the virtual NetBees, but yeah, on the Thousand Eyes side, it was a, it's an agent. Effectively, it's a it's an agent mm-hmm. that sits on uh, the workstation and and is intelligent enough to know. Okay, this is going over the uh, wireless LAN, and you know pulls in a bunch of additional statistics for you. Yeah, and these products are fairly scalable. There's a uh, Large hotel chain that I had some familiarity with. When I last heard, they had they were deploying a AppNeta agent at each of fifty five hundred hotels, mm-hmm. just to get basic up down. Is it connected to our main reservation site type data? Uh, trying to get pro from uh, phone call to proactive. Uh, scalable, uh, but but certainly can get costly. All of these solutions mm-hmm. can get uh, pretty pricey depending on how many endpoints and how much monitoring you want to do. Yeah, the other thing that we've done is used a couple of NetBees and put them in different places in the network to get what I call differential reading. In fact, that was, helped us with a site that was having Zscaler problems. Uh, the hasty diagnosis was that they were do, doing Zscaler through a GRE tunnel on their Edge Cisco router and it was beyond its capacity, so it was kind of sluggish. And when we shifted to setting up the PCs to use it as a web proxy, Zscaler as a web proxy, performance improved massively. Hmm. And so the way the NetBees played into that was we set up two with one that was excluded from the GRE tunneling process. And wow, performance is a lot better hmm. if we don't go to Zscaler. Now, we've been talking about this in the context of QoS monitoring. So when we're monitoring user experience, I think you know one Subpoint we can make here is uh, kind of like your GRE point you just made. You, we should be able to determine how user experience is impacted based on how we've configured a given QoS policy. So we could do you know, before and after user experience monitoring these these kind of things. Um, it, it, so I think that's one point we could we could make. Pete, is there you know something else we should be thinking about here? I like before and after. Did we actually? We just put in a bunch of work. Did we actually improve things? 
Yeah, and I think the corollary is what's going to be actionable for troubleshooting? Are we going to have the data we need for troubleshooting? You know, for example, I believe uh, thousand eyes can include DSCP values uh, as part of um, you know mm-hmm. the data that comes back. That's in my. I'm a former thousand eyes customer. I haven't looked at the interface for for a bit of time, but I seem to remember that was part of the data that you could get back. Yeah, and you triggered a neuron there that whenever I do a QS deployment, I like to use iperf jperf to set the disk serve bits and actually test my policy. Hmm. Not to stress test it, but just to make sure that I'm actually doing something to the packets. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's quite easy to deploy QS and, oh, that looks good. Uh, my favorite was a major military site was doing testing of voice over IP back in the Catalyst, uh, early Catalyst 6500 days. And I'm looking at the config and, oh, this is a wonderful QS policy. Oh, but they forgot the MLS QS command. So it's doing nothing. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's, I'm laughing. Certainly not because I've made that exact mistake. I mean, certainly not that. Wait, no, yes, I have. I've been there. (laughs) Oh boy. Okay. And another point that came up, Pete, in your article was look, using just basic visibility tools to make sure that you've got the fundamentals, right? Things like in your NMS, monitor all the interfaces and make sure you're not throwing a bunch of you know, discard errors because you've got a duplex mismatch or it should be a gigabit link and somehow it's only coming up as 100 meg. What is going on here? You know, things like that, that once you discover these issues, they're, they can cause you big problems and then they're very easy to fix and typically free to fix. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just triggered a war story. I got called in to troubleshoot somebody who wanted me to criticize the other consulting firm that deployed their shiny new network performance problems. Scoped things out. It was a two-day gig. Really not finding anything. Woke up at three in the morning. Sure enough, I had the right thing. They hired the company to bring in and replace their gear, but they didn't hire them. They, re- they swapped 100 meg fast Ethernet phone- Cisco phones for gig phones. They didn't touch the PC configuration. The PCs were hard-coded for speed. <laughs> yeah. And then when I asked, it turned out that a third of their ports were also Cat 3. Oh, boy. Okay. So you're not, not likely to necessarily, not going to get gig speed out of it anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So wow. I've, the lesson learned was, and I've seen this in other forms, not trying to embarrass anybody here, certainly not going to name who. It's just... Um, we sort of take for granted that our wires are going to get us good performance. And I've seen in a lot of cases where that's not a valid assumption. I'm not going to name the site, but we had a tool identified 2,000 out of 30,000 ports that were speed or duplex mismatches. And it took about six months to get the operation staff to actually start doing something about it. Wow. No, and, and and wiring really really can be uh, a fussy thing, fussier than you'd think. So just case in point, I wired my house some years ago. Now, in this office that I'm sitting in right now, I have three drops sitting in front of me. Two of them will give me gigabit. Uh, one of them will only give me fast Ethernet. Why? I don't know. It's all the same wire. I'd have to go back and pull it out and find out what happened. Was there a bad termination somewhere in there? Did I get a weird bend? Is you know there's something uh, going on there? And that's 
and I've done lots of wiring in my life. I know how to pull a good wire. And, uh, and I, yeah, I got one that's, that's no good. So not always a safe assumption. Um, and again, but just going back to from a QoS perspective, you're troubleshooting something. You think, maybe i got to fix this with QoS. Maybe you don't even have the line configured right. Maybe you've got a duplex mismatch. Maybe you're throwing packets away on an Ethernet interface for that reason. And once you discover that, it's the again should be a fairly straightforward thing to fix. But you, you if you make this assumption of you know, a perfect interface and everything's working right and the wires are all great and oh, of course that's right. I'm going to go on from there. You could be missing a trick. Well, there's a bigger problem. There, there are kind of two approaches, and what I run into a lot is well, when the user complains, I'll go check out their line. Hmm problem is then you have a user some users might put up with a crappy in effect one megabit connection uh, for years rather than complain um the alternative is if you monitor all your ports then you don't spend your time chasing around with a wire tester and physically going out to a site and playing those games and yeah you may not use it very often so this is kind of a a lot i won't name the popular product that people use for net management but uh, the common wisdom is don't manage access ports, and I strongly disagree with that. I want to know when my users are having a problem. Yeah, I, I've only could come up with a reason to not do that, depending on licensing of the network management station. If they're monitoring per port or something as opposed to per device, it could get costly, and so maybe you want to save a few bucks on your NMS licensing by not monitoring those access ports. But Yeah, well, the product in question that we're not naming – I've always had the suspicion that their licensing policy was because their engine was underpowered and they wanted to discourage you from stressing it. Well, if it's, if I'm if I'm thinking of the same product that you are, database management as soon as you start getting into, you know, pulling enough devices was always a headache, always a problem. So I uh, yeah, you might have a great point there. Unless you did your database, right? Yeah. yeah. And it may yeah. be you're stuck with a legacy polling engine. Yep, it's hard to re- and costly to rewrite it. So not that's why I'm another reason I'm not going to name products. A lot of them are challenged in this regard. But on the other hand, for some reason, there are a couple of Australian products that can monitor 50,000 SMP variables a second. So I cringe when I see people saying that SMP isn't uh, powerful. Telemetry may be more powerful, but if I have, in effect, a separate MIB or a uh, API for each vendor and for each set of gear, like with the Cisco phones, I'm told the API Varies where there is even an API for different phone models. God help the developers in pr- producing products that can monitor this stuff. Well, let's talk about some specific things to monitor. Then uh, you know, build on this conversation. We were just talking a lot about interfaces. So, um, when you monitor interfaces, and you're a fan of monitoring, you know, all of uh, all the all of the ports on a switch, even access ports. What specifically do you monitor about those? I mean, obviously, we're not talking about just up-down. We're talking about things like, well, I assume interface utilization, maybe errors, uh, discards. Is that, do you monitor those? Yep, those three. And I want percentages. To me, the sign of a naive product is it gives me numbers. Um, Because then when I do a top-end report, I see the 10 gig interfaces or whatever much more frequently than the others. And what I want is percentages for what, which interfaces are dropping like crazy or are maxing their, I don't want to have to do math in my head. Of, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a 10 gig interface. So I'm running 2% utilization. No, the tool yeah. should do that for me. Yeah. And errors and discards. Do you, do you consider errors and discards to be, you, you again want to be percentage focused as opposed to, you know, a hard number focused? 
Yep. And uh, when I say a product that tells me about CPU and memory, I immediately suspect it's a server product because CPU and memory are very rarely problems on the switches. So yeah, I like the percentages. Yeah. The other thing that is kind of nice, but almost no tool currently will tell you is the Cisco CBQS MIB. So that MIB um, is rather particular. Um, it's um, you know, buried, mm-hmm. buried down in there. And I don't, I don't know who offhand would actually be able to deal with that. Um, there's one product, the name of which I'm forgetting that I, I'm quite sure. Live does. action. That's the one. Yeah. Thank you. Live action. And I, I, I thought of it earlier, but it took me about a minute to retrieve it. So <laughs> <I don't feel>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Our retrieval engines have high latency, Pete. Oh boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and what, now what information are you going to want to get out of that? Well, unfortunately, uh, for lack of a better term, that MIB is highly relationalized, like relational database. So you have to find the index to the other index to get the index for the interface and the policy. And it takes a bit of work. I've actually written code to pull that out and hated myself every moment I was doing it. It was just kind of, okay, I get this number to get that number to get a third number. And then I finally get the metric of interest. It's all (laughs) there. You're just going to have to manipulate a lot of numbers to get what you want. Yeah. You have to do three S and P queries to get to what you want. Yeah. So having that packaged up, what I would like, what I like out of it is it will give you stats per queue. And the one I'm particularly interested in is less traffic, more discards for the queue. Because I think discards, if we've got a queue that's discarding, then it isn't getting enough bandwidth. If it's a low priority queue, discards are to be expected if the interface is a skosh tight on bandwidth. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about discards. Are are we also talking about tail dropping in that scenario, or is that actually a different mm-hmm. uh, SNMP? Could uh, be tail number? drops, could be weighted for queuing drops. Yeah. But basically, when you're doing QS, you're picking winners and losers, and when yeah. bandwidth is tight, something's got to give. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so the point you're making here is if a particular queue in the class-based weighted fair queuing, a particular class of traffic is being dropped excessively, you might look at the guaranteed minimum bandwidth you're giving to that class and go, I'm not giving it enough. It actually needs more. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, that could also be a reflection of just insufficient bandwidth on the circuit altogether, because uh, it could be you, you, everybody's dropping. You know, I, I would assume if every if you see everybody dropping in the class based weighted fair queuing scheme, and in, in you know more packets than you'd like to see dropped, that just indicates that line is too full. It's just not enough to go around. Would you interpret right. it that now, way? If you see one class dropping, there are sort of two fixes. One is to give it more uh, up its percentage, but then you start ending up with per interface figurations, which are a nightmare to maintain gee, what's it supposed to be on this interface? What was it last week? I, yep. as a, now, if you have T1s, you know, or vast disparities in speed, maybe that matters and you have to have a slow bunch of settings and a high-speed bunch of settings. But other than that, yeah, I would I, be a fan of, if you have to tweak something, just add more bandwidth. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got the same philosophy where I'm trying to standardize the percentages across the bandwidth, uh, no matter what, how much bandwidth is there. The only exception I personally have made to that is with voice traffic, where for the low latency queue, I will have done a study to know how, what the codec is and how many calls I could expect at a maximum to be flowing through this infrastructure mm-hmm. at any given time, particularly the cross connects, the WAN, and I might max that out at a kilobit per second, since... 
you know, low latency queue is a type of priority queue. I don't want it to be reserving more of the pipe there than, than otherwise. So I might go with a, an absolute uh, megabit or kilobit yeah. per second value, but, but preferring well, that's percentage usually strongly. Small. You can, I usually triple it or something like that. Um, now, I've actually done the, this falls to me under the heading of call admission control. Mm-hmm. And I used to do, for one study, probably 15 years ago, I did a deep study because they were doing the high-quality Cisco video conferencing, the room-based systems. I've forgotten what they're called. Oh, um, but, uh, yeah. It, it'll yeah. come to us. And, yeah. uh, intermediate level, and there was video, and then they wanted to do CEO uh, multicast to the troops and everything. And so did a fine-grained calculation of how much bandwidth do we need on each interface. And, um, it's time-consuming. It takes a lot of skill because uh, overhead is, has to be factored in. Hmm. So lately, bandwidth is pretty cheap, and yeah. skill is in scarce supply. No offense to listeners. No, it's, yeah. It takes time yeah. and skill, and you can throw bandwidth at it now. Yeah. Bandwidth is getting ridiculously cheap. Yeah, telepresence. I uh, I use the internet search to help me, and uh, telepresence mm-hmm. came. That was the word Thank we you. were seeking. Yeah. <laughs> one Unfortunately, other... the Cisco documents that described how much bandwidth uh, it was using, uh, it kept changing with every release, and they started getting behind. Mm. Uh, so then you were in the position of, well, if you want to do the calculation, you actually have to do one call, two call, and do some uh, do some observations. Measurement. Yeah, measure it yeah. actually, not rely on the documentation, how much is said. Uh, another yeah. term you've mentioned here is we've been talking about these practical things to monitor. You said top N data. What is top N data? Oh, it's just the top 10 or 25. I like for it to be selectable, but it's a nice feature to have in reporting is just to get a number and then be able to sort. And so for utilization errors and discards, I want to have in and out separate. That's a separate rant. If you add them, then when I see 100%, does that mean it was 50 in and 50 out? Or was it 100 and zero, which is a much worse situation? So in and out need to be kept separate in reporting. And what I would like to do is see top and inbound utilization percent, outbound utilization percent, same for discards and so top end, in this case, we could say the top uh, 10 flows, um, something like that, like I might see in a NetFlow collector. Just trying to make this clear for people that are trying to visualize this. If you're doing NetFlow, you could do the top 10 there. For interfaces, I just want to see the top 10 or 25 interfaces as far as utilization. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, you're talking averages there. So it matters whether you're reporting one hour, the last hour, or 24 hours where you're averaging in a lot of zeros except for steady state replication type flows or something. And that's where I'm amused that almost every net management product I've ever used fails to tell me what the reporting period is. So, oh, here's your top end. Well, yeah, but was that the last 24 or the last one hour? What what are you showing me here? But the point is the top are the ones that are going to be actionable. They're the ones that are interesting. They're the ones that have the highest utilization. They're the ones that have something going on that perhaps we need to be paying attention to. They're the ones that are the most worth looking at. Now, the problem is that you go look at them. So if you got a 24-hour report and you're seeing 33%, the next question is, was that something that was cooking along at 33% for all 24 hours, or, roughly speaking? Yeah. Or was it something that was pegged for eight hours and then, <laughs> right, and then averaged in 16 hours of zeros? Right. Yep. 
And uh, th- so that's kind of the problem with the max stats. And so you could use that as a screen and start looking at graphs, but that means that you have to start looking at graphs down around 33% or lower, which starts getting a little ridiculous. <laughs> so I think we need a sharper measurement. And unfortunately, we start getting into stuff that the current tools just don't do. They're not very savvy on the statistic back end, I guess, might be the way to put it. So this is where I like percentiles. Yep. I beat you to it. I said the word first. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yeah, so percentiles, right, is the next, um, you know, another concept we need to discuss here. Um, and you made a very big deal in your Q West Gotcha's article about 95th percentile. That was a percentile you were especially mm-hmm. interested in. So for people who haven't been here before, explain this 95th percentile philosophy of monitoring. Okay, well, I'm going to blame Terry Sautery. He converted me to the church of 95th percentile, and now I'm an evangelist. So, um, well, preach, brother. <laughs> okay, here goes. So, 95th percentile, in principle, what you do is you sort your data points, and you look for the one that's 95th, 95th uh, from the top in terms of percent of all the data points. So, if you have 2,000 data points... Uh, you figure out what 5% of that is. Uh-oh, shouldn't be attempting math at this hour. Um, <laughs> 100. So you look for, you go 100 data points down from the top, and that's your 95th percentile out of 2,000. And, and why do we care about 95th as opposed to 97, 99, or 100? Well, that good question. And that's uh, where... Um, I've been using the term, it's a measure of badness or crappiness, if you like to be pithy. Mm-hmm. Um, so the 95th percentile is the value where most of the time you're below that number, but 5% of the time you're at or above that number. And so for 95th percentile, the above or at is going to be about one hour out of 24. If you have 24, you're working on 24 hours worth of data. So it's how crappy it was for an hour. Now, it might not have been a consecutive hour, a contiguous hour. It might have been five minutes here, five minutes there, depending on the polling interval. But it were, so it's sort of a measure of what were your worst um, 60, approximately 60 minutes of airtime. Another way to think of the 95th percentile here is most of the time we're below this utilization or whatever the metric is we're measuring. Occasionally, we spike above it, you know, occasionally being defined here as, you know, 5% of the time we're above it, 95% of the time we're below this. And then when we find that number, that becomes an interesting specific metric to work with and to work around. Yep. And side note for the vendors, if anybody's listening, is that you probably don't want to do sorts to compute it because that's a computationally expensive way to get to it. There are actually approximations that uh, can be done much more efficiently. Or you can, there, there are algorithms that help. I did this like 35 years ago, so please don't ask for details. <laughs> <laughs> I built them into something I coded. Um, but uh, so you kind of, to me, in stewing about this, you kind of have to think about how much badness, how much crappiness you can put up with on a link, how much you care, how critical it is to you. So if one hour of crappiness is not the right measure for you, maybe you want two hours worth, then you can look at 90, 90th percentile. 
to to adjust our uh, our dividing line between uh, most of the time life's okay, occasionally mm-hmm. life's bad, and you can move that move the yep. bar of uh, splitting between those two uh, down a bit if you if you need to 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 whatever is appropriate yeah, so for your situation. If you want to make sure that things are good almost all the time, maybe you go up to ninety nine. 99th percentile or something like that, mm. where you're getting the level of crappiness, but it's um, going to be a very short amount of cumulative crappy time. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and so then you look at it, and if you look at that percentile number and it's 30%, then you know, hey, things weren't too bad. If it's 99%, then wow, we had a really bad however many minutes or whatever the badness period was. Yeah, and so so the big idea here is we know we end up with the determination of what's normal and what's not normal, and then can make decisions um, when things are. If normal is really hot, as you were just saying, that kind of indicates we have a problem that uh, that we need mm-hmm. to we need to take an action. Um, you know, that action could be upgrade the bandwidth. It could be it could be tweak the QoS policy. Although so often these things again. We've been talking a lot about QoS in this, but really the problem at the root of that is, is very often is a bandwidth problem. Um, but you can use this 95th percentile to help you figure that out. Right. So sort of like doing a top end. Well, you can do a top end on the 95th percentile. What are my worst 95th percentiles? And that tells you which, if nothing else, which graphs to go look at. So if you have a thousand interfaces, you get it down to 5, 10, 20 that are I've rarely seen it be more than a few. Um, and you go take a look at them. Whereas if you just use average utilization, I found myself looking at 30 or 40 interface graphs and that starts getting tedious. Yes. So, <laughs> the now, if it's- you want a head tw- brain twister, think about doing this with the QS, CBQS MIB. So you could mm. do it on a per class, per interface basis, uh, except that's probably just too much data. Yeah, I mean, you're really getting granular. I mean, to me, if you're trying to figure that out, you're solving for some very specific problem and you're getting really into the weeds here to try to figure out exactly how to do some tuning. Um, But to like monitor that across the board seems like the amount of data you'd be dealing with is just just overwhelming. You'd need a a live action like we came up with before or um, or some other tool that can aggregate the data for you. That's where I came up with this idea of looking at your fragile traffic. If you have a flexible tool, what you do is you add up across the fragile classes or the critical, more critical classes and just do a single number per interface based on the sum of those classes Mm -hmm. drops. Um, so what you need is kind of a flexible stat package on the back end if you don't want to code this for yourself. So to me, this sort of shades into a telemetry conversation, which unfortunately means maybe growing your own tool. But if you're feeding into uh, one of the uh, publicly available packages like Grafana or Kibana, I've been playing with them a little bit, don't claim to understand them deeply yet, but they may be able to do this sort of math for you. You'd have to feed them right the right data sources, um, and then yep. have them manipulate the data in a way that's meaningful. But uh, but right then, if you're rolling your own stats and things that you want to monitor, I I can see how you could get there. Yeah, yeah. And so we have a our skilled, highly skilled customer earlier this year was in fact using the Juniper package, the open source package, whose name I'm conveniently blanking on at the moment. 
but uh, they've got a source that does an SNMP polar as a pseudo-telemetry source for devices that uh, don't yet support telemetry, feed it into a container-based backend, and they have that whole gamut of stat tools. I've been looking at the Cisco telemetry materials, but um, so far getting telemetry, <laughs> well, getting telemetry out of a virtual Nexus 9K doesn't work. All the counters are zero. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. get other telemetry, but you don't get utilization stats. I was privy to a conversation between a couple of Cisco employees uh, while standing at a show. This goes back a couple of years, and um, they they weren't all working off the same sheet of music um, to make the, mm-hmm. the telemetry, the modeling, and the interpretation thereof all be the same thing. It was a very interesting conversation to hear. I wish I could talk about it in more detail, but oh. Yeah, well, my initial reaction was I was getting lots of stuff that I didn't actually give a hoot about. Mm. But presumably some hopefully someone did. Hopefully someone cared about yeah, it. Yeah, some of it yeah. would have been useful for up down or other failure indications and stuff. I was more interested in metrics. And that's probably on me needing to recognize that there's more to the world than just metrics. Hmm. Well, Pete, this has been a fantastic conversation. Now, one of the things I, I think some of the listeners hearing us chat about all this are going, this is mind-bogglingly complex. And it is the irony of mm-hmm. QoS. I had a conversation on, a, it was actually a video chat with uh, with Greg Fair. We're going to be publishing it on a YouTube channel here in a few parts. But you know, his attitude towards QoS is it's so difficult to get right, just screw it, throw more bandwidth at the problem. And, you know, QoS is what it is. And even when you think you know what you're doing, it's hard to get it right to actually perform right. And, you know, and I, I understand why he takes that stance. I can, in, in an indirect way, we've highlighted that here. There is a lot of effort that goes into actually understanding how your QoS policy is working and behaving and monitoring it is far from an easy thing that everybody just knows how to do. There's a big challenge here to, uh, to getting it all correct. Um, but so, Pete, one like parting you know, question: As you've done QoS and rolled out QoS schemes with various customers over the years, um, have you had success often enough where you you feel that QoS is worthwhile? Because you know, when you get it right, there's a payoff. Yeah, I, I feel that it's it takes a lot of work to get it there, but we've deployed some, including in a hosp- large hospital setting. And uh, yes, you have to get it right and. That takes some care and some follow-up to make to check that you got it right. But uh, it's been relatively trouble-free. We didn't really have time to get into the wireless topic, but I feel it's sort of the same thing. It's, it's better to put something in place that uh, protects you a good bit of the time. Mm. And then if you can ma- manage to monitor it somewhat and tweak it where needed, then you do so. But as we've been saying... Sometimes the simpler answer is, okay, we've got a problem over there. We've got more or less the right QS, so let's um, just throw some bandwidth, additional bandwidth at it. And that's worked out pretty well. Uh, The bigger problem with maintaining is perhaps new applications come along that need tender love and care, and you've got to figure out how to recognize them. And with Internet-based software-as-a-service stuff, um, that pushes you into Cisco AVC and some additional degrees of complexity, let's say. Mm. And I'm a bit leery of that. <laughs> well, Pete, you, you're, you're recovering from some significant jet lag uh, from a trip you just completed. I've spent all day at a customer, so let, let's wrap this up. Would you uh, tell folks how they can follow you, anything else you'd like them to know about you, Pete? 
Sure, thanks. Uh, I've got a blog at netcraftsmen.com. There's a blog link at the top of the webpage. On Twitter, it's at PJ Welcher, W-E-L-C-H-E-R. Um, my initials and my last name. I'm also on LinkedIn. Um, and for what it's worth, you asked about books. I wrote a book a long time ago. So the trivia challenge is to figure out what the book's title was. <laughs> okay, now you're going to have me digging around to uh, to find that. Uh, I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. You can reach out to me there if you got uh, some comments for me. And uh, again, Pete at PJ Welcher on uh, on Twitter as well if you want to uh, tell us how right or wrong we are about all this QoS stuff here. And if you want to dig into the show notes for this episode, that is going to be in your podcatcher if you look at that or over at packetpushers.net. And if you do go to packetpushers.net, we got over a thousand other episodes across our podcast network. We got podcasts on cloud. We've got podcasts on security. We've got podcasts on infrastructure engineering and, of course, networking. Um, and it's all aimed at you, the networking and infrastructure professional. we got a community blog there, news feeds, etc. Again, all at packetpushers.net. You can tweet at us, at packetpushers. Uh, we're on LinkedIn if you'd like to follow us and keep up with the content that we're producing. Uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts if you wouldn't mind. That, uh, that helps us. And if you want even more content than you can get for free at packetpushers.net, well, hey, we got a membership site for you, ignition.packetpushers.net, where uh, we're going even deeper on cutting-edge topics like uh, SD-WAN um, and so on. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>